When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The People of the Sea by Michael Whitehouse A legend says that on the wind of the North Atlantic there is carried a key to a strange land, a place of unequaled beauty and unparalleled nightmare. For too long I thought those stories the product of whimsical minds, lazy lips espousing wishful dreams about what lies beyond the horizon. Now... I know that, like most legends, a seed of truth has long been planted in the cultural memory of our ancestors. Some intrepid soul had once entered that forbidden land perhaps more than once. It just so happens that I'm the most recent guest, invited or kidnapped, choose whichever suits your interpretation. It was near the Isle of Lewis off the northeast coast of Scotland where I first encountered the land. Lewis is in the far corner of the United Kingdom and with its sprawling grassy lowlands faces the oncoming winds from the Atlantic. Seas swell, tides beat against the rocky shore, and the people who inhabit this part of the world are rugged, kind, and stoic. Unfortunately, my contact with the people there lasted only a few days. After a scenic stay in the Moorsgale house, I traveled by car and then boat across the water to Little Bernera. This remote island is uninhabited, perhaps the reason that its secrets have remained hidden for so long. No permanent population has lived there since the 1800s, but evidence for its original inhabitants reaches far back into the midst of time. Forgotten peoples with equally forgotten beliefs and, dare I say, sciences. What brought me to the island was my research. I was working on a thesis for my PhD at Strathclyde University, one which I hoped would forge my name into the annals of British and Scottish archaeology. Most of the ancient languages of Scotland were long forgotten. The cultures of those people who thousands of years ago had once roamed the mountains, glens, and islands of the mysterious country had always held a fascination for me. I wish I'd never developed that fascination word had led me into the most frightening of places. I will not bore you with my academic work any further. Time is short. Suffice to say, I had developed a theory that, much like several islands which had sunk into the Mediterranean, ancient stories suggested that at one time a large piece of land had collapsed into the dark abyssal sea off the coast of Scotland, taking with it an entire population of people and its culture. This theory was roundly discredited and mocked by my colleagues. Nonetheless, there were tantalizing fragments of knowledge suggesting this reality. Allusions in ancient texts, depictions of a calamity carved in rock, and even the old folklore about the people of the sea. 
With arduous research, I discovered that the Isle of Lewis was most likely the closest place to where this mysterious land had fallen. Furthermore, that little Benira was intimately connected with the legend of the sea people and what befell them. This uninhabited island sat in the mouth of a huge sea lock. My research suggested that when the sea people and their land fell into the dark swells of the North Atlantic, that one of its survivors washed up on the shores of Little Bernera eons ago. I am proficient in sailing and hired a small fishing boat for three days, although my research budget would allow me. As I approached Little Bernera, breathing in the sea air, I marveled at its beauty. An arcing bay filled with sand and pebbles welcomed me as I tied my boat to an old weathered mooring. The wind carried itself across the landscape, covering the surroundings in a sharp, salted scent. On a hill nearby was the only standing building, an old slated fish curing where the local fishermen once processed their catch. But it was not the structure which was the focus of my research, no. It was the many headstones that dotted the hills as they rose and dipped around me. You see, Little Benira has another secret. The entire island is a graveyard. The crofting town of Carloway used the island as a burial ground until its residents finally created their own cemetery nearby. They would cross the water and bury their dead in the soil, marking the site with a headstone. Looking around at the windswept, low-lying hills and rocks that looked out to the infinite depths of the sea, I understood why such a place could be seen as an entryway into the afterlife. I walked up a steeper incline, compass and map in hand, following my notes to a place I dreamed of. The Keystone. This headstone was different from the others, as it hid something precious beneath it. I followed the trail of breadcrumbs and spoke to someone who knew of its location, perhaps the only person still alive who understood its importance. His name was Gilhaven. His family had long protected the secret. It was rumored that they were descended from a local elder who was among the people who found the survivor of the calamity on their shores. Ever since, the family had kept hidden evidence of that survivor, now interred beneath a fake gravestone. Gilhaven, by this time an alcoholic, had no love for his family's duty and was quite happy to spill the beans on the grave's location for a few hundred pounds. I obliged in paying, and the information he gave me led to that very spot on the windswept soil and rock of Little Benera. As I reached the crest of a hill, I saw that it dipped down on the other side by several feet. At the bottom of that depression, there was a hole in the ground, cast in shadow away from the sun, which was now beginning to dip in the sky. My heart sank at what I saw. I leapt down the hill and took a closer look. There was a hole there, all right just big enough for someone to slip inside, but I feared that what was underground had been disturbed. Taking out a torch, I shone it into the darkness and could see that the headstone now lay broken on the floor about fifteen feet beneath the opening. Had a competitor gone there before me, or had the grave simply caved in? In any case, I had intended to discover what relics the grave hid and was enthralled by what appeared to be an underground tomb beneath the grassy depression. I had come prepared for a subterranean surgeon, as the old stories had suggested I might find such a place. Indeed, my supplies would allow me to stay on the island for several days, packed away in my trusted backpack which had accompanied me on many an adventure, alongside my sample containers and a good book to read by fire at night. 
With some rope tied to another headstone, I lowered myself into the darkness. As I descended from the world above, the air changed immediately. No longer was there a sharp, fresh smell from the sea rolling over grass and rock. This was replaced by a musty scent like rotten compost. Ancient roots weaved in and out of the soil around me as I descended, the trees which had once given birth to them long since removed from the hillside. When I reached the bottom of the hole, I could see the grave broken on the ground, though the writing was barely legible. The Haven family had placed the gravestone over the entry point over 200 years previous to mark it, though my research suggested that the cave beneath and what it contained was much, much older. I speculated that the gravestone had been erected because the family commitment to duty had been slowly waning. Perhaps it was left there to guide future generations of the Haven family, should they wish to return to their positions as caretakers of such secrets. The dank air was overpowering at first, and so I breathed through my mouth as much as possible to protect me from the rotting stench. Turning the light of my torch to the walls of the cavern, I saw the roots above had given way to something else. The walls were lined with a strange material, what looked like leaves of intricate metal, perhaps a copper alloy of some kind, though darker. Each leaf was about ten centimeters across, and they were layered on top of each other like the surface of a hedgerow in spring. The metal itself had been inscribed with strange symbols which I did not recognize. Thousands of metallic leaves, cold and still in the darkness of time. Thoughts of sunlight were far from my mind. Only the chase mattered. I had to find evidence for my theories about the people of the sea to prove the doubters wrong. How I wished now I had not pushed forward. Up ahead I could see a doorway, the frame made from rock. Beyond that there was a staircase that descended deeper into the earth. This both thrilled and frightened me, for I could feel an unexplained draft of warm air filtering through it, and in the depths somewhere I heard something moving. The closest I can compare it to for memory is the sound of an old mill grinding wheat. As I moved down the stone staircase, the walls soon changed from the leaves of intricate metal to a smooth, dark green surface which glistened in the dim light of my torch. It was cool to the touch, but the air was growing ever more stifling with each step. The temperature was not the only thing apparent, for the draft of it, the movement of the air current was now stronger than before. This was no mere flow of air from one room to another. Something was producing it, pushing it up through the staircase toward me. The grinding noise increased as I reached the bottom of the stairs. My nerves began to get the better of me as I looked toward another doorway. My god, there was a light coming from the next room. A yellow light, like that given by a candle, but not flickering. I thought that it must be someone else who had happened upon the underground structure before I had. Moving forward, I cautiously asked, Who's there? But there was no reply. Walking through the doorway, I trembled slightly as the light suddenly vanished before I could see its source. The world dimmed in its absence, and so I moved the beam of my torch around to see where I now was. At last, I'd found what I'd been searching for, the fruit of my work. 
Though I could not explain the vanishing light, I'd quickly extinguish that question with awe at what I saw. In the middle of the room, there was a stone altar. Ancient pseudo-Celtic symbols intertwined beautifully across the gray stone, resembling that of a double helix. Upon the altar lay a stone sarcophagus, an ancient coffin, beautifully carved out of rock with striking geometric patterns running along its side. Running my hands across its intricately carved exterior, the rectangular sarcophagus felt warm to the touch. The flat lid had inscriptions in a language I did not recognize, but the carvings at the head of the coffin depicted a huge wave crashing over a complex and advanced city. The residents were fleeing through the streets between tall buildings. It was more evidence to suggest that the lost people from the sea were real, and if my research was correct, that the sarcophagus held the remains of a body washed up on the shores of Little Benira more than 3,000 years ago. I knew that my discovery would now have to be carefully vetted by a team of archaeologists, so I took some photos on my phone of the stone sarcophagus and readied myself to study further inscriptions on part of the surrounding dark green walls. As I stood there, marveling at their artistry and pondering their meaning, I heard something that chilled me to the bone. The sound of stone on stone. I shuddered as I turned, and what I saw utterly terrified me. The lid to the sarcophagus had moved. There was now a definite gap exposing the interior and what was contained therein. Call it madness. Call it stupidity. Though I was terrified, I had to see what was inside, persuading myself that some unknown mechanism or pressure change had shifted the stone lid. I walked back to the sarcophagus and peered into the darkness. I expected to see the skeletal remains of an ancient Celt, but what I saw was utterly inhuman and remarkably preserved. Its bleached white skin, if you can call it that, was pulled taut over its sharpened bones. It appeared to me that the eyes had long since rotted away, but the depth of the ocular cavity suggested that it had evolved to see in low-light conditions. The head was elongated slightly, and from its neck there was something protruding. A type of limb was my best guess, one which was utterly unrecognizable to modern science. The rest of the body appeared humanoid in shape. As I peered inside, I puzzled as to how the remains could have still been largely intact. There was no apparatus that I could see, and the sarcophagus was clearly not sealed. On closer inspection, what I had initially thought were empty eye sockets, I soon realized were the product of some sort of troglodyte process, where a species, perhaps in this case a hominid one, had evolved to lose its eyes as they were a useless resource in the dark. I knew that this was quite common in cave-dwelling spiders and insects, but it had, to my knowledge, never been seen in larger animals. After all, there was very little to sustain larger animals underground. What would they eat? I speculated that the strange protrusion from the neck, which looked almost like a long, thick finger and knuckle about two feet long, was some sort of sensory organ. This had most probably evolved to replace the loss of sight with a nuisance, 
The face of the thing was repulsive. The nose had receded like a skull, leaving two vacant holes through which to breathe, and the mouth had no teeth at all. In fact, the smoothness and roundness of the mouth made speech, at least through normal means, seem quite impossible. As I wondered how such monstrous things would have communicated with each other, I noticed that one of the creature's hands lay on a strange object. It was a metallic cube. Though it appeared to be polished metal, no reflection could be seen in its surface, as though the light from the surrounding world had no real impact upon it. And yet, I could see it clearly in the dark. Reaching inside, I stretched my arm out and touched the cube with my finger. It was almost in my grasp. I stretched further, my hand brushed against the taut white skin of the body in the stone coffin. I gasped in horror. The skin was warm to the touch and a wet liquid that I can only describe as sweat smeared along the back of my hand. A gasping noise sounded. Lungs which had not breathed the air for an age wheezed in and out of a toothless, gaping mouth. A smell of rotten seaweed came with it, and I cried out as the thing moved, wrapping its long fingers around my throat. I pulled back with all of my might, but the grip was not relinquished. It tightened, and before I knew what was happening, the pallid body pulled me through a small opening into the sarcophagus inside. Our bodies lay together as I tried in vain to scramble out of the stone coffin, but the figure with me lurched its arms upward and pulled the lid back down tightly. I was trapped inside the coffin with the naked, sweating creature. My face was buried in the emaciated cavity of the thing as it wrapped its arms around me and held me close. Then the appendage and its neck, lit by the torch of my hand, moved around like the twitching of a spider's leg, bending at the knuckle. A cracking sound accompanied the movement. From the end of its limb, a sharp protrusion came forward, and the crooked appendage struck toward me. I could barely breathe. The sweating flesh of the thing's body pushed up against my mouth, tasting and smelling of rotten fish and decay. Looking up, I watched as the appendage moved toward me. It lunged at my head, and I battered it away with the torch in my hand, then again and again. Finally, the creature changed tact, and the sharp protrusion then plunged deeper into the back of my hand, cutting straight through and out the other side of my palm. I cried out, yet I knew no one would hear me. I was on an island in a remote part of the country, deep underground, where no human had any right to be. A slurping noise came, and I finally realized why the thing had no teeth. The appendage on its neck was used to putrefy the innards of other things so that it could suck the juices dry. I felt something hot inside my hand as the insides were turned into necrotic fluid. The appendage pulled out and then searched for somewhere more succulent. It was in that moment, that brief pause between being eaten and alive, that I reached down with my other hand and grabbed the metallic cube. It was now ice cold to the touch and heavy. Lashing out, I thrust the cube into the empty eye cavities of that thing in the sarcophagus, and then... Nothing. A strange abyss awaited me. The darkness consumed my thoughts momentarily, and I was aware of hideous entities outside of imagination. Creatures and intelligences far beyond the rim of understanding. Then a flash of light. I was outside, and the creature was gone. 
but such a place I had never dreamed of seeing. A strange, volcanic landscape revealed itself. Black rocks dotted the world around me, many of them reaching up toward the sky, uneven and worn. My hand was badly injured, and I could no longer move my fingers. The metallic cube was nowhere to be seen. I was utterly alone. Dazed, I walked the solid terrain and found nothing familiar to my eyes. If I had not seen the position of the sun, I would have thought that I had been stranded on some unknown distant world. Somehow that metallic cube had sent me to that place, and yet the cube itself did not come along for the ride. At least that hard thing in the sarcophagus had stayed in its burial chamber and not come with me. Trying to gauge my location, I walked up a steep incline to see the lay of the land. It was then the true horror of my situation made itself known. Looking down, I could see several vast openings burrowing into the ground and deep inside what looked to be deep lakes of seawater. In the mouths of those opening, pale dots moved and writhed. I knew them now to be the creatures who had once been described by the ancients as the people of the sea. They seemed to be looking out of their subterranean, submerged world, looking to the sky and waiting for the sun to set, when they could once again set foot on land. I laughed to myself. The translation was nearly right. It wasn't of the sea. It was the people in the sea. The same creatures who'd been consumed by some cataclysmic event and buried in the Atlantic. One of the survivors had made it to Little Benira, where no doubt a cult grew up around it. To the early people on the Isle of Lewis, the creature must have been a god or a devil. The tomb that had entered had obviously been constructed to not only preserve the creature, but somehow sustain it. It's been three days since I arrived here. I now know the truth. The creatures are not gone. They are not temporal. Their land may have been once swept into the Atlantic thousands of years ago, but that eventual end was not their end. I have hypothesized that the metallic cube that sent me here allows the people of the sea to return home whenever they choose. Was the horrid thing in the sarcophagus the last of them in our time? Are there more hidden beings in caves and in the darker places of the world? I do not know, but I worry deeply for the future of humanity. For if that thing was a treacherous emissary from the depths of time, it now knows humanity is waiting. I've watched from afar these last few days, hidden behind rocky protrusions, watching as the white figures move in and out of the huge openings into the ground and water. It seems they're doing something. There's a purpose of sorts. I doubt I shall ever know the true depths of that purpose unless they find me here and show it to me. But it appears that they are coalescing in number, like an army staging an invasion. I'm nearly out of food and water. I do not think I can last much longer. I have written these notes for those in my time and I will seal them inside one of my titanium sample containers. I've also included samples from the ground, this black, lifeless volcanic island which seems to stretch for untold miles. Out there, somewhere, is the coast of Scotland, 
as it was thousands of years ago. If only I could see those green shores once more. At night I hear the creatures chattering among themselves as they are much more active in the dark. Their voices are like the crumbling of rocks and the twitching of an insect's legs. Last night one nearly found me, but I managed to slip away undetected, I think. My strength will leave me soon. I've left details of this container of my loved ones. Please contact them. Tell them what befell me. I did not just vanish. Perhaps those who do vanish from the remote places in the world are never gone, but instead find themselves stranded on this piece of hell floating in the sea. How I would hope for such an outcome so that I may have human company. I wonder if these words will ever be found. If you are reading this, alert the military in Scotland. Pass these samples to them and tell them that on the island of Little Benira, one of these creatures still lives, hidden underground in a sarcophagus with the means to return home at any time. And yet, it did not. What was it waiting for? I move around a lot for my job, and in doing so, I'm often placed in hotels for a week or two weeks at a time. Most of the time, it's nothing more than a Motel 6 or a Red Roof Inn, but occasionally, if the client is paying well, the company will put me up in a Marriott to ensure I'm well-rested and taken care of. A bad night's sleep can ruin a deal with a potential investor quickly. Last week, though, I wasn't put into a Marriott. Hell, I wasn't even staying in a Motel 6. I was placed in a no-named hotel off some highway in Arizona. Pulling up to it made me uneasy. I'd stayed in motels that looked cleaner than this place, and this was supposed to be a hotel. I suppose it was, just by size alone. If I had to guess, I'd put the building at 30 or so floors. The outside looked decrepit, with the bricks being covered in moss and vines. Some of the windows were smashed, and the door leading into reception screamed when I opened it. The inside was better, but not by much. The architecture was incredible, even if it was falling apart. Cracks in the ceiling and near the foundation made me uneasy. Surely this place won't fall in while I'm in here, right? I thought. Pushing all my judgments to the side, I strolled over to the front desk. If I learned anything over the years of hotel hopping, it was that a hotel was only as good as the service they provide. Hi, I have a reserved room under the name of Shandar. The young woman at the counter just stared at me. She didn't necessarily look confused, but I thought maybe she hadn't heard me, so I repeated. Dar, it's spelled D-H-A-R. Keeping her eyes on me the whole time, she rolled her chair back, picked a key off the board behind her, and handed it to me. In a low voice, she said, Have a safe night. The use of the word safe really confused and unsettled me. Normally, a receptionist would say something like, Have a good night, or enjoy your stay, but never had I heard, Have a safe night. It was off-putting and the woman's checked-out demeanor didn't help at all. 
Not only did she seem completely out of it, she looked... Well, dead, for lack of a better word. She was as pale as they come, and her hair was platinum white, despite her looking to be in her mid-thirties at the oldest. When I pressed the button for my floor, I noticed something, and thought I was piecing everything together. My room was on the twelfth floor, and right above that button was the fourteenth floor. There was no thirteenth. I'm well aware of the superstition behind the number thirteen, but I was under the impression that this kind of thing, going as far as to not include the button on the thirteenth floor, was something only done outside the U.S., and it was certainly nothing I'd ever believed in. With that said, my boss was a big believer in anything supernatural or otherworldly. That's why my assumption was that he'd put me up in a haunted hotel in order to give me a little spook. Probably didn't even have a client to meet with tomorrow. I called my boss a name under my breath and walked into my room. It was pretty nice. Much nicer than I was expecting given how the rest of the place looked. There were no cracks in the ceiling and the bed was made and didn't smell. It was a bit stiff, but what hotel bed isn't? I threw off my shoes and clothes, stripped down to my boxers, and was about to crawl into bed to relax, but then I saw that there was no TV in my room. Okay, I thought, no big deal. I'll just watch something on my laptop. There was no Wi-Fi. Not a single network popped up, no matter how many times I searched. At this point, I was more frustrated than confused. Why would my boss put me up in a hotel that was old as Jesus with no internet? I couldn't even load up my presentation for my client because I hadn't had a chance to back it up offline. It was nearing midnight at this point, but I decided it was best to give him a call and see what the big deal was. I'm going to give him a piece of my... No service. Okay, that was weird. I could use a hotspot and get in touch with him over email, but it was unlikely he'd see it until tomorrow. I decided it wasn't worth the worry, and went to the bathroom to brush my teeth, trim up my beard, and get ready for bed. Now, until this point, I'd written off all the off-putting and strange stuff. The pale woman at the counter, the cracks in the ceilings and walls, and the lack of internet. But when I opened the door to the bathroom and saw a man in the tub... I was quite shaken. I pulled the door back closed and my thoughts began racing. Had I gone into the wrong room? Was I going to be called a pervert? Would I get kicked out of the hotel? I was asking myself all these questions when I realized the man hadn't asked who was there. Hadn't asked who I was and why I was in his room. I turned the knob and opened the door just enough to see the edge of the tub. I could see his arm hanging off to the side, so I knew I wasn't seeing things. I called out, Hey man, I think I checked into the wrong room. Sorry about barging in on you like that. His arm stayed still, and he didn't respond. Did my boss set this up? A nervous laugh escaped me. I know I told him I needed to get laid, but this is not how I was expecting it. Again, the man didn't move. Against all better judgment, I pushed open the door, just ready to be over with whatever this was. Look, man, I... The bathroom was incredibly cold, and the smell of copper filled my nose, and the taste even covered my tongue. The man in the tub... He was dead. 
The hand that hung over the side dripped with blood from a gash in his wrists. I got closer and saw his other wrist had a similar gash, and there was a razor blade floating in the tub. I ripped my feet from the floor and grabbed the phone by my table to contact the front desk and get them to call the police. When I put the phone to my ear, though, there was no dial tone. No matter what combination of buttons I pressed, nothing happened. I grabbed my cell next, but I still had no service in this place. Thinking it was the architecture, I tried opening the window, but it was either impossible to do so, or the decades-old paint was much stronger than I anticipated. I felt like it was likely the latter, given the fate of my unexpected roommate. My last resort was to go back downstairs and get the woman at the front to call the police, or just leave and find service on my cell and do it myself. I threw some clothes on and opened my door to head out, but this wasn't right. I'm a very forgetful person, but there's no way in hell I would have missed the fact that the hall was more disgusting and dilapidated than my room. When I checked in, the hall looked fine. It wasn't anything fancy, just your standard affair hotel hallway, but now it looked centuries old and it was falling to pieces. The wallpaper, instead of the soft beige it was, was now a deep red with numerous dark spots decorating it like spots on the dog. Some looked like water damage, but others looked closer to a splatter. I got closer to it, trying to figure out what it could be. The longer I looked, the more I began to understand it wasn't water. I just wasn't ready to accept that, so I kept making my way to the elevator. Call me what you want, but I didn't realize there was no elevator until I was halfway down the hall. The tall silver doors had been replaced by a much simpler wooden paneled one. On it there was a placard. Employees only. I looked around, as if there was anyone else there, before trying the knob. To my surprise, the door clicked open and what greeted me on the other side was... a maintenance closet. There was no elevator on the other side, though I don't know why I expected that. It was just brooms, vacuums, paper towels, and the like. I closed the door and started back down the hall, following the signs to the stairs because apparently that's what was in store for me. I wasn't jazzed about walking over ten flights of stairs in the middle of the night, but there was also a dead man in my bathtub, so I didn't have much of a choice. The stairwell was much darker than I'd anticipated. There seemed to be no lighting, but luckily the flashlight on my phone was still functional. Part of me wishes it wasn't. When I flicked it on, I was greeted to the gray concrete you've come to expect from dank, dark stairwells, but similarly to the walls of the hallway, this too was covered in dark spots. Some looked to be drips, others splatters and in the corner of one floor a massive splatter that led to a long, dark drip all the way down to the floor. There was no more denying it. This was blood. At the risk of breaking an ankle, I hauled ass down the stairs to get to the front lobby. I practically burst through the door once I reached the ground floor and ran straight for the front desk, ignoring my dilapidated and crumbling surroundings. From a distance, I saw the woman sitting at the front desk, her back turned to me. Ma'am, excuse me, I need your help. I have no cell service and... 
I almost stopped there, but I knew I couldn't. I had to make sure I wasn't going crazy. Someone else had to see this. There's a dead man in my bathtub. I... I don't know how he got there, but I need you to call the police. She wasn't paying attention to me, even as I banged my hands on the counter, screaming at her to please listen. I made my way around the counter, grabbed her chair, and swung her around. Ma'am, can you please... I fell back on my ass hard, and my breath was stolen from my body. The woman I'd seen when I got there. She was still in front of me, but now... Now she was maybe 30 years older and her throat was slashed wide open. Dark brown, dried blood covered her torso and the floor around her. I made it to my feet and made way for the front entrance door, fighting for traction on the dusty floor the whole way. I shoulder-checked the door, but my foot caught on something and I fell to my face outside. When I came to, a paramedic was using a pen light to check my eyes. When I grunted out a, what the hell, he looked up and called out, he's still here, let's get him loaded up and moving, he's been through hell. The ride to the hospital was a huge blur and I'm pretty sure I passed out before I even made it to the ER. The next time I woke up I was in a hospital bed, my boss of all people sitting beside me. I lifted my hand and patted his arms as a thank you for being there. He turned to me, shocked. Holy shit, Ashan. How you feeling? You okay? Over the next few hours, he explained. I'd been missing for three days. After I left work, no one could reach me. My voicemail wouldn't even pick up calls. It's just said that the number had been disconnected. My boss said that he had sent me on a job, but after the police looked through GPS data on my phone, they saw that I'd veered off the road at some point. I tried explaining that I'd taken an exit, but he assured me that the exit I'd claimed to have taken was demolished over 65 years ago. It used to lead to a hotel, but after a deranged man waltzed in, killed the receptionist and seven other people, staff and guests, before offing himself in the bathtub, the exit leading to the hotel was demolished. The hotel wasn't holding guests like it used to. People were too grossed out or even afraid to stay there, claiming that there was something off about the twelfth floor. Demolition was planned, but never carried out, so it was just left to rot. The exit I took was actually just me driving off the road into an open field into a line of trees. That was the working theory anyway, because to my confusion as well as everyone else's, my car was basically untouched. There was a small amount of mud on the tire, showing that I did go off the road, but there's no way I made it through that line of trees without totaling the car. That's failing to mention that where the car ended up... That being parked in the parking lot of that hotel was over ten miles from the road. I have no explanation for what happened to me all that time ago. I was never a believer in the supernatural, or ghosts, or aliens, or even portals, I suppose. But I have to give you this word of warning. Be careful driving on the highways of Arizona. You may just end up being something far worse.
than just lost. Tunnel 72F by Michael Whitehouse I once knew a man who was afraid of nothing. No monstrosity, man-made or fictitious, could subdue his spirits, and the mere mention of the word supernatural would elicit a most cynical laugh. This bravery was both his greatest strength and his most profound weakness. For ignorance and heedlessness can often be disguised as a deep and foolhardy sense of courage. He was to learn the limits of his bravery under the earth, down in those oppressive tunnels deep below the streets of Amsterdam. His name was Hink, due mainly to his Finnish ancestry on his father's side, and although his parents had passed away at an early age, he believed with conviction that his courage came from them. It was a matter of pride a connection to the family he had lost, and it was this, above all else, which drove him into places and situations where others feared to tread. I'd met him four years earlier, while traveling with some friends on a common rites of passage, backpacking through Europe during a university break. He and a few of his friends were on a similar adventure and happened to be staying at the same youth hostel in Rome. Both groups got along well, but it was with Hank that I struck up an immediate rapport. He was a keen musician. Like him, I was, at the time, still filled with the self-promise, or should I say delusion, of stardom through my own musical pursuits. Our friendship grew over the subsequent years, mostly via email, swapping musical discoveries, talking about politics, and generally getting to know each other as best two people can through simple correspondence. Traveling was also a must for both of us due to work commitments, on the odd occasion, we would find ourselves in the same country and enjoy meeting up for a few laughs. And of course, he always knew which local pubs served the tastiest beers, as well as which restaurants to best avoid. It was 11 months ago that I visited him in Amsterdam. The Dutch city seemed to be a good fit for him as he always liked to live in the liveliest of places. The countless meandering canals, bridges, and walkways swamped by the footsteps of a million tourists each year appealed to his love of vibrancy and history. Amsterdam had seen many a traumatic occurrence since its inception right up to and including the Second World War. Hank found himself in the city as he had been recently hired to carry out important maintenance work on the Reich Museum, one of Amsterdam's most impressive buildings. When I met him in a small, dark corner of a local pub, well away from the burgeoning tourist trade, I was shocked by his appearance. He was a friend I knew as being larger than life and exuded bravado, and yet what I saw was a shell of a man, slight in stature and racked with self-doubt. His sunken, anxious gaze worried me, and so I did my best to provide a kind ear to ease his burden. Among the murmurs of fellow drinkers nearby, from that darkened corner of the pub, he began to tell me of the events which had led to his precarious condition. What he told me then, I will tell you now. Hank had been working as a civil engineer for some time and relished the challenge of renovating the Reichs Museum, a building with a long and compelling history. 
The museum housed Amsterdam's finest collection of historical artifacts and being given access to some of its more hidden places, which were inaccessible to the general public, piqued his fascination for the obscured and unique. He'd been hired to lead a maintenance crew assigned to assess and repair the building's foundations. The oldest part of the structure dated back centuries and had a most bizarre and, it must be said, quite horrific history. The Rijksmuseum itself had been constructed in 1885, but it had been built on top of an earlier structure which possessed a much older and unusual past. I knew immediately that this would appeal to Hank, as he often spoke of the fond memories he had as a child exploring vacant buildings, passageway, and caves near where he grew up. As a child, he loved nothing more than to lead his friends into places they would otherwise have avoided. The dark held no fear for him, nothing but the promise of hidden secrets and the opportunity to show his bravery to those around him. In the bowels of the museum, under its marble floors and deep red brickwork, lay a labyrinth of abandoned tunnels which had one time served as part of the old city's sewer work. They'd long been disused and fallen into disrepair, but they were nonetheless an essential part of the building's foundation and had to be assessed and repaired. If not, then the entire structure would be in danger of subsiding. The ground and upper levels of the museum were beautiful, displaying many wonderful historical relics from all over the world. On his first day on the job, Hank wandered around the artifacts before starting a shift, especially interested in the war expedition. Gas masks, uniforms, bullets, and dog tags of soldiers bloodied and forgotten all populated the sealed glass display cabinets. A group of children ran after their mother nearby, laughing and pointing at the weapons on show, imitating the sounds of explosions and gunfire. Families moved in regimented fashion from hall to hall, room to room, some talking about the violent history on display, others involved in more important conversations, such as which dinosaur toy to get from the gift shop. So bright, welcoming, and warm was the atmosphere of the building that it was difficult to imagine the darkness which festered below. After some quick words with the building manager, Hank proceeded to an old, seldom-used room at the back of the museum. It housed an antiquated, cage-like elevator covered in rust, which was used by the maintenance crews to access the lower levels and the sewers underneath. Pulling on a pair of dirt covered yellow overalls complete with a hard hat and headlamp he entered the elevator for his first descent pressing a cracked button the elevator creaked into life and chugged slowly downward on a rattling chain and squeaking pulley as the elevator delved deeper toward the abandoned sewers hank thought to himself that those of a nervous disposition might have left such a dank and isolated place prey on their minds this may have explained why the previous man in charge of the repairs had left so abruptly, citing nervous exhaustion and refusing to so much as set foot in those pitch-black corridors of cold stone ever again. The elevator winch and engine stuttered as it lowered Hank down four levels into the basement. With each passing floor, he observed a slight dimming of the lights, and each subterranean level appeared more sparse and stone-like. Than the one before. A rusted plate attached to the elevator betrayed its age. 
It struck Hank that the year of its construction, 1932, must have been among the last periods of maintenance carried out there before the occupation of the Nazi army. He knew much of the shameful history of the region as he was part Jewish and his great-grandfather had died during the Holocaust. Many had fled to Amsterdam for sanctuary from the Nazi regime in the early 1930s, but the long, blighting arm of Hitler's horrific final solution eventually reached the borders of the Netherlands, sweeping many thousands away to those shameful and barbaric concentration camps. With a shudder, the elevator ground to a halt, and after forcing the grating, sliding door aside, Hank disembarked. The old sewer tunnels spread out before him and were curious in construction, steeped in history which stretched back much farther into the distant past than of the museum itself. Having spoken to his employers, he had been specifically told to pay heed to the assessment and repair crew's knowledge of the tunnel layout as the place could be disorienting. The lighting system required to illuminate the maintenance work had not been fully installed yet. His new employers, up above in cushy office buildings miles away, seemed unusually concerned that he would find it all too easy to get lost down there. Most importantly, he was informed that the two-way radios normally used to communicate between team members when underground had been playing up and that they were unreliable due to interference, probably produced by nearby metallic deposits in the ground. This meant that when interference made communication impossible, he and his crew could only communicate verbally or by using light from their torches to convey simple messages via Morse code. This was particularly useful in longer tunnels as a crew person's yells would often echo and contort in such a way as to be almost unintelligible. In any case, it struck Hank that the catacombs below really were isolated and lonely places, even more so with intermittent communication to the world above care would have to be taken, but he did feel a nostalgic sense of excitement for a hidden world begging to be explored, like all those days spent looking for adventure as a child. After standing in the small bricked elevator room waiting to meet his new colleagues, Hank was glad to finally see another person. Jones, second in command of the maintenance crew, appeared from around a corner, whistling to himself while his headlight bobbed and weaved to the sound of feet through inches of stagnant water. Heavy-set, rosy-cheeked, with a wide grin which had told a thousand jokes, Jones was the type of person Hank instantly knew he would enjoy working alongside. After a few pleasantries, Jones debriefed Hank on the current progress being made, informing him that the initial mapping and assessments of the tunnels had gone well. All in all, there were 16 four-people repair crews, each of which was assigned a section of the sewers. Hank would oversee the entire operation but he knew that he would need to directly supervise two of the crews working in one of the more isolated tunnels. The walls there were in precarious condition, and if they were not careful, a cave-in could occur. It was his priority to make sure that did not happen. After walking for 15 minutes, both men arrived at the section of the tunnels which would be Hank's focus for the next few months. The sound of the occasional drilling could be heard in the distance as the workers continued to install the still non-operational lighting system. As the four-person crew assigned to that vicinity would be working further away from the other crews, it had been decided that they would have their lighting installed last. Hank did not like this due to some of the crumbling brickwork which was already visible to him. 
The idea of the crew drilling only by the light of their headlamps when the work required a delicate hand made him cautious. He was brave, but not reckless with the lives of his colleagues. He made a mental note to prioritize the lighting installation in that section to lower the risks to his team. Each passageway seemed oddly shaped, with no two tunnels being quite alike. That entire section of the sewer was so antiquated that it had been built long before the careful planning of such constructions had become commonplace. One tunnel would arch forward for over several hundred meters in a strange semicircle, while others bisected it at right angles, carrying on in a regimented straight line into the darkness. Hank never even found a passageway that seemed to dip and rise, only to slither its way in an unnatural S-shape. Some tunnels seemed to go on forever. Others stopped abruptly, as if the original builders had been unable to complete their work, leaving in a hurry. Jones tried to keep the conversation light, and with the man's experience of walking through the tunnels for the previous two months, Hank was glad to have a guide to show him the way. Waiting in a large alcove was the four-man team assigned to that area. They would work that section of the tunnels during the day, while the other shift would take over later, working through the night. Jones introduced each of them. They seemed nice enough, but Hank was surprised to find the men largely in the grip of silence. In such jobs, humor was normally found in abundance, with repair crews using it to slice through the monotony of working in such cramped and repetitive conditions. Here, though, he found them uttering not one word beyond a monotone greeting. Sitting in silence in that imposing alcove, he removed from any consideration of camaraderie or fellowship the only interference that they were not a collection of subterranean statues was the occasional movement of their headlamps altering the shadows around them. They seemed wholly disconnected from not just each other, but the very environment in which they worked. Hank brushed this feeling of unease aside and committed himself to cultivating conversation. If these men were in some way angry or uncomfortable with one another, then he would soon lay that to rest. A happy workforce is a productive one. The first order of business was to survey that section of tunnels and decide where repairs were most pressing. Preliminary assessments had already been made, but Hank liked to evaluate any repair projects he was involved in personally. He walked to the catacombs with his team and noticed immediately that they were still on edge, that they seemed frightened in an almost childlike way. No amount of questions, casual or otherwise, could elicit anything other than the one-word broken replies. Slowly, they toured the winding grid of tunnels, lighting their way with the small torches attached to their safety helmets while taking notes about failing walls, water damage, and estimations of any possible repair time. Twice, Hank pressed the men on their obvious sense of fear, asking why such an experienced crew, who no doubt had worked in many tunnels before, were so apprehensive of mere bricks and mortar. They avoided the questions. Looking nervously at one another, they would change the topic of conversation with monotone lethargy whenever it veered toward their experiences of the old sewers, or of their previous supervisor's unceremonious departure from the job. It began to dawn on Hank that the men's verbal and physical awkwardness was not the result of tensions between workers, but rather of a deep-seated and worrying apprehension of what he did not know.
What was clear was that his team were counting down the minutes until their shift ended, when they could finally clamber out of the darkness into the safety and sunshine of the world above. As the beam from his headlamp trickled over the damp and crumbling brickwork, Hank again conceded to himself that some may find such a setting unnerving, but not him. Whatever had caused such trepidation and disquiet among the other men was surely a simple case of idle superstition, mischief-making, or the understandable psychological toll of working in a dark, cramped, and forgotten part of the city. Even Jones, who had through most of the catacombs been jovial and talkative, now adopted the same sullen expression and serious disposition as they made their way deeper into the oldest part of the sewers. The passages wound and meandered their way through the ground, long, steady trajectories, intermittently and abruptly interrupted by sharp, blind corners, making it difficult for Hink to identify exactly where they were. There were so many winding corners that he felt disoriented and was ready to joke with his men that if they didn't like him as a boss, they could probably leave him here and he would never find his way out. But his men were no longer beside him. He was standing at the mouth of a tunnel, and while he had continued onward, talking, trying to fill in the difficult silences, his men had stopped at the last junction. They stood motionless, some twenty feet behind, staring at Hank with blank expressions, occasionally betrayed by the slightest flicker of a very real and gripping emotion beneath. A look of suppressed terror. When he asked why the men were not following, they whispered in reply that they stood where the last of the repair work was needed. Pulling out a map and Perusing it intently by the light of his headlamp, Hinks surmised that he must have wandered into the remotest part of the sewer network, in the back of the catacombs, and, while the tunnels continued into the foreboding distance where he now stood, must have marked the boundary of the Rijksmuseum's foundation. What confused him, however, was that the area had been clearly listed on the map for repair. He was standing at the entrance to what appeared to be a rather innocuous tunnel, but the wall next to the opening, he could clearly see that someone had placed an identification plaque there, marking it for repair. It read Tunnel 72F, Water Damage and Failing Masonry. After double-checking the map, it was clear to Hink that Tunnel 72F was indeed still under the Rijksmuseum foundations and had to be appraised and repaired. But when he told his men this, they simply informed him that where they stood was as far as they would go. Anger began to take over, accompanied by frustration that the team he was supposed to be supervising was being so difficult, but even raising his voice and demanding that they head into the tunnel did not move them. Just as things became increasingly heated and Hank yelled at the men to do as he said, Jones interjected, We've worked down here for two months, boss. It's as good, hard-working, talented crew you have. They'll do exactly as you ask when you ask it, but you'll have to accept that for them, for me, our work stops at this junction and that none of us will go near that tunnel. You might think it's mad, but whether you want to believe it or not, there's something in there. Taking a deep breath and calming himself, 
Hank explained to his men that he understood the stress induced by working in such a suffocating environment for an extended period of time, but that repairs had to be carried out in full. He would talk to them later about it, but for now, he would carry out the survey himself. For a moment, there was a silence, broken only by drips of unseen water which echoed out from a distant, unsure place. As Hink stepped over the threshold into the apparently forbidden tunnel, Jones and the other men protested vehemently, shouting to him to leave the passageway immediately, but he saw this demonstration as nothing but foolishness. He was not to be swayed by unsubstantiated, superstitious nonsense. There was nothing in that tunnel to fear. Just as he had done when he was a child, he would once more prove to others that they should not be so scared. By stepping up, by being a man and pushing forward into places others feared to tread. Pride coursed through his veins. His parents were brave and fearless before him, and he had long since sworn to always be bold, always be adventurous, to be just like them. With a smile, he looked back at his men before heading face first into the darkness, the excitement of self-reliance pushing him on. While the tunnel seemed fairly common in its construction at first glance, as he progressed deeper into its dark innards, it was apparent that this was unlike any sewer he had seen. The ground was uneven. The floor dipped in rows, much like some of the other tunnels, but what was peculiar was how fractured the surface felt underneath his feet. The ground was obscured by a thick, almost oily water, which in places reached up as high as his knees. He trudged through the stagnant liquid slowly, not because he was scared, but simply to ensure sound footing. One thing was apparent, however. Long ago, the water had deposited there. It was long enough to fester and produce an unpleasant, rotting stench. The walls were of a different, significantly older composition than most of the brickwork he had seen in the sewers elsewhere. Whatever the material was which had been used, it was hundreds of years old. It was obviously failing, while long, penetrating cracks scarring the surface of the increasingly unstable walls and ceiling. The light from the headlamp was enough to illuminate much of the tunnel, but as Hank ventured further toward what he thought was a dead end, he realized that the passageway was narrowing, and that the tunnel itself did not stop there, but rather tapered slightly before curving abruptly around a blind corner. He estimated being over a hundred feet into the sewer, and while his curiosity for what could be beyond that corner urged him to move forward... He believed that he'd made his point and would now ask men to abandon their fears and enter the tunnel with him. Unholstering the black handheld radio he'd been issued with from his side, he began requesting for Jones and the others to meet him at the corner of the tunnel. No one responded, and nothing but a quiet buzz could be heard from the radio speaker. Of course, Hank now remembered that he had been warned about how unreliable the radios were, but just as he was about to turn and shout back toward the opening, something caught his eye. Surely not. There should have been nothing in that disgusting place but stagnant water and himself, yet pulling and pushing relentlessly against his bravado and self-assured disposition was the creeping realization that something was standing 
at the end of the tunnel. Obscured mostly by the blind corner, he could only see a sliver of it, but it was unmistakable. A ragged piece of cloth poked out from around the corner, and although Hink's mind was unwilling to accept it, the cloth was obviously part of a sleeve. A sleeve that contained an arm, belonging to who or what, he did not know. Stubbornness can be an effective tonic for even the most horrifying and unbelievable of situations. Hank's confidence in himself and his long history of triumphs over fear and adversity welled up inside of him. Filling his chest with pride and with a strong assured stride, he gulped down a breath of the damp air and marched purposefully toward whatever was around that corner. The slush and slosh of the black water echoed throughout the tunnel as he made his way to the blind turn, almost hesitating as he reached it, an unease that was alien to him. Apprehension now turned to sadness and empathy, for standing there in that cruel dark passageway, shivering and disheveled, was a girl who could not have seen more than thirteen years. Her face and hands were blackened with grime and dirt, hiding her pale and malnourished frame. A ripped shirt was all that she wore, hanging from her loosely, with much of her body exposed to the cold of that damp, isolated place. Gazing at him between strands of dirty blonde matted hair, Hink was struck by how beautiful the young girl was and how afraid she must have been. How frightened and helpless. At first he believed that she must have somehow entered the sewers and lost her way, but no matter how softly he spoke, she would not answer appearing afraid and nervous. He tried his radio again, but was greeted with the same meaningless static. Regardless, he had to get her out of that tunnel, back through the sewer, and into the Reich's museum and seen by a doctor. He did not want to shout on his men in case the noise startled her or added to the girl's disquiet. The last thing he wanted to do was chase her through the catacombs, so he decided to lead her out of the passage himself. As he approached, he spoke gently to her in Dutch, explaining that he would take her up above to safety. Stepping forward with his hand outstretched, the girl seemed to quiver in fear. She appeared terrified of him. This made Hank feel uncomfortable as he prided himself on being someone who would do anything to protect the vulnerable. Someone to be trusted, not feared. She made no sound, but as he reached her, she raised her left hand and slowly pointed one finger at the light on his head. He suddenly realized that the sharp light from the headlamp must have been frightening her, so he took the light off and held it in his hand to allay her fears, the lamp now casting shadows upward more starkly. The changed angle of light brought something unsettling to Hank's attention. Pinned to the girl's torn shirt was a yellow cloth star. It surprised him, as it was entirely familiar, but it took a moment for his mind to grasp the memory. It was exactly like the yellow stars forced upon the Jewish populations during their persecution to allow members of the Nazi regime and their conspirators to identify them. It can't be. Hank's mind fought against the ramifications of such a discovery. After a momentary pause, he once again was resolute, disregarding the cloth star and asserting to himself that he had to take the poor girl out of such horrible surroundings. A tremendous sense of unexplained sadness overcame him as he drew closer. 
The torch flickered unusually in his hand as he looked down at the girl, her face momentarily illuminated by the shifting light, her arms still outstretched, pointing at him. He would carry her out of the sewers if need be, but this sense of duty, this compulsion to be brave and assertive in even the darkest of places was now replaced with something which Hank had never felt before. Running up his spine and from the very pit of his stomach. Fear gripped him. Terror took him. And a horror possessed him so potently that it made him unsteady, anxious, and weak. For Hank, he had not noticed something so subtle yet essential to his predicament. The girl had not stopped pointing at him as he drew closer. Her arm was rigid, and her finger remained outstretched, even... The light, which was now in his hand, seemed entirely unimportant to her. Realization swept over him like a plague of abject dread. The girl was not pointing at the light. She was pointing behind him. Hank did not remember much more of what happened in that tunnel, but he knew that he had indeed turned to face whatever had been standing behind him, whatever the girl had been pointing at. He thanked God, something he was not normally inclined to do, that Jones and those men who feared the dark hollow so acutely had shown true courage, running into the passageway as soon as they heard his screams. Hank regained his composure back at the alcove where he had met the men as they were carrying him out, but he immediately pleaded with them that they take him out of the tunnels to the world above, which is what they did. Once the rusted elevator reached the ground floor of Reich's museum, they sat together in a small room at the back of the building and had a frank discussion about what had been happening down there over the past two months. Jones explained that the first survey team which had encountered that specific sewer passageway resigned from their posts after just one night down there. A week later, one of their co-workers who decided to stay on committed suicide after complaining repeatedly to everyone that he could hear the whispers coming from somewhere as he worked nearby. Not long after that, Jones's previous supervisor, the man Hank had replaced, saw someone, an unidentified figure, standing at the mouth of Tunnel 72F and had followed it inside. One of the cleanup crews found him shortly after, crawling out of the sewer on his hands and knees, crying hysterically like a child. He'd been hospitalized and heavily medicated ever since, but no one knew exactly what he had seen down there. He would not speak of it, but the men who recovered him claimed that he was repeating only one word when he was found, just one word over and over again, frantically. Nazi. Hank was a nervous wreck after his experience and ordered that no one under any circumstances be allowed to go into Tunnel 72F. He continued to work down in the other sewer passageways, day after day in the dark, but he was consumed by the notion that he had seen something so frightening, so terrifying, that he had forced himself to forget the ordeal. Over the next few weeks, he lost weight and had trouble sleeping, often waking up in a disturbed state, drenched in a cold sweat, unable to recall what he'd been dreaming about. The very idea that he, above all people, brave Hank, could be reduced to such fragility that he could be affected so deeply by something he could not even remember in its entirety, preyed upon his pride and his sense of self-worth. 
His bravery had always defined him. And now it was gone. In an effort to combat the feelings of helplessness and self-loathing, he attempted to find out all he could about the tunnels under the Rijksmuseum. Knowledge, as they say, is power, and my friend felt that if he knew more about that place in the dark, that he would somehow be less afraid of it. He read about the history of the museum on the nights he could not sleep, and while he found very little of it helpful, one local legend struck a chord with him. It was rumored that during the Second World War, a number of Jewish families took refuge in the tunnels below the Rijksmuseum. When two SS officers were tipped off as to their whereabouts, they entered the tunnels with some local volunteers hoping to arrest the people down there and then most probably send them off to a concentration camp. The rumors were that the families managed to ambush the SS officers and their Nazi sympathizers, killing them and dumping the bodies somewhere in the sewers. This was the story Hank related to me when I met him in Amsterdam. It was sad to see him so shaken and vulnerable, a strong, powerful individual who had never shown so much as a hint of fear for or of anything in his life. A friend who I respected greatly, one with such indelible character to be reduced to a diminished man living on his nerves. He thanked me for listening to his burdens and I, regrettably, had to leave shortly afterward to catch a flight to get back to Glasgow. Unfortunately, the story does not end there. Some men are haunted both by what they have seen and by what they cannot understand. Ego can be a terrible burden for anyone. Once it is fractured or damaged, the lasting effects can be devastating. Hank could not let go of his pride, nor his desire to feel strong again. Whole. He had never been afraid of anything before, and no matter what was in that tunnel, no matter how much anyone attempted to dissuade him, he was determined to confront it and reclaim his self-belief. Three days later, Hank's body was found at the mouth of Tunnel 72F, stuffed into an old duffel bag. It was a heart attack which had killed him, but whoever broke twisted and shoved his body into that morbid sack after he died was never caught. I should mention that the bag was of particular interest to the police in the event that it could reveal something about Hink's death. It was traced to Germany, army issue to be precise, and had not been manufactured since 1941.